0: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at ChemicalCityReads.com. Hey,
1: oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Reed Dish when you call or email Shauna.
0: Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz, And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
1: Uh, the other day I was on campus for the first time in quite a while. One of my students has her recital tonight. And so we were doing a chamber music coaching. It was the Pumak Trio. I've heard of it. Yes. (laughs) I have gradually changed my teaching style to adapt to an online environment, which makes me a lot more animated. The volume is way up. And I walked into that in-person coaching and it was so much. The students were looking at me like, (laughs) she's lost it. I was like, I need to tone it down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How have you been lately? Oh, I've been good. I'm looking forward to this Thanksgiving break that is coming up. I don't know about you.
1: Yeah, I'm super looking forward to it because our last day of class is the 23rd. So once we hit Thanksgiving week, like donezo.
0: Oh, that is not the case for me. But I am very much in need of a breaky break. and. Obviously, um, it's not safe to like gather or travel in the ways we might normally for Thanksgiving. But Chris and I kind of did a compromise and we rented an Airbnb. It'll just be the two of us and Buddy. Uh, But just to get out of town and kind of relax, you know, be warm and snuggly and take some time off. And I'm just like mentally, anytime something gets stressful, I just like close my eyes and like go, think of the Airbnb. Think of the Airbnb.
1: So. <laughs> I love that. That's going to be so nice. Becky has promised me that she's going to roast a whole chicken. And she's going to make a couple of different pies for Thanksgiving.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of looking forward to Thanksgiving, I thought we could do the corny uh, things we're thankful for. But you have a very big life development to be thankful for and uh part of that is oboe adjacent so i think you should tell our listeners about it because i'm super happy for you
1: oh my god becky and i bought our first home and i am speaking to you from my creaky chair in my (laughs) attic room that is gonna be my oboe room right now it's just u-haul boxes everywhere
0: (laughs) i can confirm (laughs)
1: Can confirm boxes everywhere. Um, but this is going to be my space. It's a sweet house. It's exactly what we were hoping for in exactly the budget that we were hoping for. It's such a beautiful thing to feel like you can settle down and put down some roots and grow where you're planted that Ben Kamens talked about in his interview about just like embracing where you are now. It's such a wonderful feeling to let go of the constant striving for better and recognize what you have now is wonderful. It's just a house, but it really, that's what it all symbolizes for me. It's like, we can finally be a family in the same place, both of us being happy and fulfilled doing what we do. It's pretty remarkable.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so excited for you to get your studio space set up with moving to Pullman was the first time that I've had a home office place to have all my like read stuff at home. And obviously that takes on a new importance working from home the way we are. But I love to just have a little, you know, part of the house that's for like me and my, my cane and my thread and my books and all my stuff. So I thought we could maybe round this out with continuing the like uh, things I'm thankful for double read style since we are a double read podcast. What? So I want to know what read tool you are most thankful for.
1: My Cooney Bear Michelle gouging machine. Tell me why. I'm in love with it. It is such a fantastic gouge. And now the blade is starting to get dull. So now I'm going to have to do something about it. But it has improved my reads like you would not believe. <laughs> it was so expensive. But I'm like, I like treat it like a little precious. <laughs> like, don't touch it. Don't get near it. It's mine. <laughs> what about you?
0: Okay, I'm going to have to go with my... Do you say guillotine or guillotine? I say guillotine okay. because I'm pretentious. I usually say guillotine, but then I always wonder if I'm doing it right or not. Anyway, the chomp chomp. Chomp chomp. That, <laughs> that makes it so I don't have to use the cutting block because I would always have like diagonal reeds. Oh, yeah. On the top. That's not good. Or I had for a long time these like tip snippers that my dad got me from the like hardware store. And they it's were an unfortunate name. <laughs> they were not made for tipping reeds. They're made for, I guess, like a wire or something really industrial. So they would like smash and obliterate the tip opening. It like wasn't the greatest option. And then because they were so powerful, like the reed would go shooting across the room as soon as you like, clip it.
1: <laughs> also not great.
0: So I'm happy for my guillotine, guillotine, uh, I'm thankful chomp, for chomp. you. It, for a long time, I was like, that is an exorbitant purchase. I cannot possibly budget for that. And then, you know, eventually. <laughs> what etude book are you most thankful for?
1: Um, I'm most thankful for the height scale book. It's not an etude book, but it's got etude like qualities and this thing it's the height foundation studies i bought it in 2006 and i'm still not good at it like it's one of those books that just keeps on getting harder the better you get it's (laughs) it's, you go through like i just oh man it's it's a it's a lifelong challenge that foundation studies book by david height and it's got some like really cool scale exercises and etudes at the very end um, and some really good suggestions for different articulation patterns and practice patterns and things like that. So that's like my go-to.
0: I think my answer is a little basic. Mildy. Not Mildy. Wise and Born. Not Wise and Born. Okay. She's trying to flex and show that she's a <laughs> bassoon etudes, folks it, barreling, I can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as basic, I would probably choose the uberdo.
1: Oh, shoot, that was my next guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> For the opposite reason of you, because it is not incredibly hard. It's more kind of like a back to basics thing. And when you're like, uh, I just want to play something where I sound good and where I don't have, you know, like sometimes A2 books can be like, oh my gosh. Holy moly, like there is a time and place for those type of etudes. And then there is a time and place for laying your head down softly on the welcoming pillow known as do and doing some <laughs> thirds, doing some fourths, <laughs> long tones. He's going to walk you through what you need to do to get warmed up. do walks you through. Yes. Yes. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's uglyducklingobos.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She
1: has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JennetIngel.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code Dish for 10% off their first order at jennetengel.com.
0: We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Titus Underwood, Principal Oboe of the Nashville Symphony. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, you know, dig in and get in the conversation.
0: (laughs) Can we start to hear about how you began your musical journey and began to play the oboe?
2: Absolutely. So I started off, I mean, I'm from Pensacola, Florida. Uh, I'm the youngest of six kids, very musical family. Uh, Grew up past this kid, like church music and gospel and dancing and clapping, all that stuff in the aisle. Uh, And I grew up, you know, on gospel music and hip hop and jazz and everything else under the sun. So like I just grew up in a really musical household and with that many kids in the house it was a lot of noise. And all of us play instruments. So it's like, what instrument are you gonna play? You know, not are you gonna play music. So I had to pick something musically else I mean my dad made us sing as a family. He was like a tyrant with of intonation, you know. <laughs> so it's like that's not in tune. So you know, I, I had to so my first thing was like singing it with my family and uh, singing in the choir and then my sister who played violin, she was like, You should play the oboe. And I was like, what is that? So she showed me, you know, a picture of it and she showed me Brahms violin concerto, second movement. I was so the only thing that kinda like made me a little upset is that it didn't have a spit valve. It's like, where's the spit valve? <laughs> I'm like, what what kid thinks of that? Like I don't even know how I heard about it, but somehow I wanted a spit valve but <laughs> You know, I'm cool. I get water in my keys. Or <laughs> so I think I Someone's got Someone's
1: like, your spit valve is your pants. Get over it. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. You sit right there in the little circles on the pants. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. So that that's how that's how I came to the oboe. She was like, you play? And I was like, okay. And then I liked it. And I kept going with it.
1: That's really interesting that you chose such a, uh, dare I say, Stodgy (laughs) orchestral instrument with your interest in gospel and jazz and hip hop. And um, what about the oboe spoke to you?
2: I was playing classical music and I was improvising. So I used it in different forms. So the oboe didn't seem it was just what I played. My sister was like, it's a very difficult instrument. I was like, I know it's not. I mean, whatever. I'll (laughs) play the oboe. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, at the time I was very, you know, daring, but, but I just, I love the sound and I love when everything was working right. You know, when you're playing the oboe and everything is just working right. There's like, we're always chasing that. So that feeling of just playing the oboe I loved it and I love participate. I love the, uh, you know, the participating of playing with other people. I think just the collaboration, you know, so, but most uniquely was the sound. Like most people who get uh, attracted to the oboe, it's that that uniqueness of sound uh, that drew me to it and kept me drawn to it.
0: And so when did you decide, I think I want this to be my career. I'm shifting to the mindset of an aspiring professional majoring in music, all that type of stuff.
2: Okay, so majoring in music. Ooh, so that's a difficult question because when I first I didn't really think that this was going to be my career path necessarily. Um, because like me and my brothers had a rap group and all this stuff, and we did all right, you know. So one day (laughs) I'll release stuff on the internet, like some gospel rap. I mean, I don't know. I mean, but like DC (laughs) talk. No, oh, not that we weren't corny. I mean, uh,
0: I say, I love say, is me a verb. Talk is yeah, I, mean. Uh,
2: me I mean, we had some hard music. It, it was, I it was banging. But like, you <laughs> no. we was dropping Bible verses and stuff. You know what I'm saying? So like, but it wasn't. It wasn't corny. We did it in, in a cool way. But you know, but I, I, I loved other art forms of, of music. I mean, the thing was. I never thought that there was any music higher than the other. I just thought like dope art is dope art. I would say what Nas does for me, Beethoven can do for me. What Beethoven does for me, Nas can do for me. You know what I'm saying? So like it was, I was always had a more eclectic view. I wasn't, and I listened to symphonic music and stuff, but I wasn't like that person who was like, man, I need to go to Interlock. I didn't know that existed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I didn't know can existed. I didn't know what the Cleveland Orchestra was. I didn't know what the Philadelphia Orchestra was. Maybe the only thing I heard of was like the Boston Symphony, because I don't know for some reason that was popular. You know, Boston Symphony or the New York Philharmonic. I didn't know all these orchestras existed and what people did, so I didn't know that was a career path to. I didn't even know you had to audition or anything. So when I got to conservatory, the reason why I I went to CIM because, you know, my band teacher was like, "You have a talent. You should do this, and you should you know study with John Mac. And then someone showed me his excerpt CD, and I was like, "Oh man, that tone! I think I sound like that already." And I am just like, <laughs> "You know, what I'm saying? like I, I was just like, I guess, kind of delusional at the time, <laughs> I really all was delusional."
0: I'm
1: not laughing at you. I'm just loving the confidence.
0: Yeah, it of was like high school you. Well, and apparently you weren't delusional. Uh, maybe <laughs> no, if you were like, not delusional. Gas okay, now, I'm still but... trying
2: out here. I'm still trying out here. But it was. I mean, it was, a, I knew that if someone else played it and I played it, why can I do it too? You know, that's kind of right. how I thought about it. I wasn't, you know, I came in a family where there weren't seeds of doubt sown. So like my mother, my father really taught me to be confident in myself and just do what I, I thought I was set out to do. There was nothing that can hold me back. I was young and stuff. So like, you know, then I went to conservatory and I didn't really decide to do music into my second year of conservatory with John Mack it wasn't necessarily that I didn't love the music. I love playing the music. The thing that kind of drove me nuts was the culture of classical music. Like just, I, I felt like, you know, I showed up my 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 locks and like my wear jeans and stuff, people are like, oh, you're a bodyguard. <laughs> you know, what do you listen to for music? Yeah, you know, listen to the Beatles. I listen to Pink Floyd. I'm like, I never heard, you know, whatever. I mean, I listen to Nas and I listen to, you know from Nas to Shirley Caesar to whatever, you know all these different types of artists. So for me, I didn't really feel like I fit in. I wasn't trying to fit in, but like, I was like, man, why can't we just be ourselves and also like this music? Like, I don't really understand. Why do I have to, I could just be me and still play the oboe? Cause that's what I did at home. Nobody was telling me to be anything different. I would play a Bach cantata at church, like right after the B3 organ was, you know, roaring and people was dancing in the aisle and they sit down and be like, oh, Ty's about to do some classical stuff. And people were like, yeah, I get it. You know? And it was, there was nothing weird about it, so it's like okay. I'm thinking that when I go somewhere else, you know, I'll be just as accepted in what I was doing. So my it, it I started. I had a conversation with my brother. I never forget it. And I said, you know, I, I really like doing this. He's like, man, are you gonna do this? Are you gonna do this? And I was like, I think I really want to do this. Like, I love playing music. I think I'm pretty good at what I'm doing. You know, um, and you know, I guess uh, I think I really want to do it. And he's like, cool, cool. So. The next day I went into my lesson to speak to John, to play for John Mack. And I never forget John Mack called me that night. He was like, you really want to do this, don't you? And I was like, this is weird. Cause he had like some six sense psychic thing going on. I'm just wow. like, "Wow, how did you know? He's like, I can see it in your eyes. You can <laughs> never know when the light turns on, but the light is turned on. And I'm just like, <laughs> I had that conversation last night. And this guy wow. called me telling me, that I actually want to do this. And from then on, I knew I really wanted to do it.
1: I would love to hear more about your studies with John Mack. Mm -hmm. His memory is a blessing. Let's talk about it.
2: Absolutely. So I would say John Mack, I mean, of course, there were plenty of people who took, you know, a chance on me and really wanted me to grow and things like that. Uh, but John Mack was that first person who really gave me a glimpse into what I had potential for in the professional world. At first, I didn't really think so. You know, once I got there, I mean, my confidence bubble was just pop. I mean, there was people playing circles around me, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Me, Titus, he thought he sounded just like John Mack at the time and all this stuff. I'm just like, nah, bro, you got to get it together. So I knew, <laughs> I knew I had a ways to go. So I mean, but Jump Mac really fostered. He really helped me grow. He really, like, boosted my confidence. He really, like, he was so patient. I'm like, how are you so patient with me? You know, so, you know, but he really, really took his time. And I would never forget that. And he always talked from a musical perspective. Like, nothing was ever, I mean, contrary to some beliefs sometimes, think that, like, I just sat, we just sat down and made reads all day. Like, no, like, he showed me some things, but not, in his super tech, hyper technical way. He mainly always gave me a musical solution to a technical issue. And that's how he taught. Like he taught through Baird. He taught through the articulation studies. He talked through, you know, the furlings and different pieces. And, you know, that's how he taught. So my biggest memory of John Mack was like how giving he was. He was extremely giving. Like if I didn't have money for the cane, he'd buy it. You know, if I didn't have money for that knife I would see it the next lesson. You know, like literally, and if I needed my oboe to be worked on, I'll take it to the shop, he'll pay for it. Like he was just such a generous spirit. So for me, he was a huge impact on my life on how I teach now and how I'm how to be generous. And, you know, there's one thing I learned is just like that student is your universe when you teach that student. So like my phone is, I'm not checking my phone, I'm not wondering what's going on. I'm not looking out the window, you know, hoping the lessons, are. I need to put my full energy on that student because that is their sacred time. You know, they're paying their money for me to give them that space. It's like, if you, if people believe in therapy and go to therapy, like if I'm paying a therapist, you're here to hear me talk today. And I'm here to get, the feedback <laughs> from, bro. So this is my time. <laughs> talk about all the people that get on my nerves. You know what, I'm saying? So like, <laughs>
1: what else is there to talk about in therapy than the people that get on your nerves?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, I, I want, I want to help grow that student and believe in that student and build up their confidence. And that's the one thing John Mac really instilled in me is that he had a different method for every student. Like my method was different than other methods because I was at a different place. I mean, there are people that play 20 pieces. I had probably like five on the resume. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe a handle concert on G minor, some sand songs, and maybe a pooling snout. So I don't know, but I wasn't <laughs> like playing the duty TV or, you know what I'm saying? Or right. Like, Right. I, I, didn't, I didn't Strauss at the time. I didn't really have the mo. my single tone was so slow, so the Mozart was off the table. But you know, I think there were things <laughs> there was things that I had to really learn, and he was so patient in helping me grow, and I don't think I could have gone to a better place and studied with a better teacher at that time.
0: So you decide it's what you want to do as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. Talk us through the path from that decision to Principal Oboe of the Nashville Symphony.
2: Oh, that's a long journey. Ooh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: so, I went to after John Matt passed away. Uh, I studied with Frank Rosenwine and Jeff Rathman, a little bit with Betty Camise. And, uh, you know, I was, I mean, Frank was new in the job at that time. You know, he had just got there. I think Frank's like 26, 27, something. I couldn't imagine like inheriting a studio that <laughs> impossible. So, Shout out Frank, man. You did a great job. And like I really was like, it was kind of like a John Mike was like a teacher. And then me and Frank, he was a teacher, but it became like a partnership because it was like I would demand things and say, Hey Frank, I really need this or I really need help in this. And he really stepped up and saw how much I was investing in that, which grew his interest to also foster me as a teacher. You know, because he wasn't in the, like that full-time teaching all those students, and that's a lot you know, to keep up with and also trying to get tenure and principal with the Cleveland Orchestra. So, you know, that was a lot. And I was a very demanding student. So I really wanted at that time, I decided that I wanted to do this. And then I lost my teacher. So I'm just like, I don't have Jamac in here to like see me through this, you know. So my thing was like I got so much out of Frankie, helped me so much. And I was like, I really want to go to Juilliard. I want to study with Elaine Devos. I was like, okay, I'm gonna do the one-two combo: the C.I.M. the Juilliard. So that's what a lot of people did. I was like, hey, I want to do that too. And I was like, I really want to study with Elaine Devos. And then from there, I took lessons with Pedro Diaz, and I really resonated with him. So my first year at Juilliard was actually with Pedro Diaz. Then my second year was with Elaine Devos, and me and Elaine Devos. You know, over the years, I would say she's still one of my mentors. I love Pedro. And I mean, I had me and Elaine grew a very, very close relationship and she helped me really get a good grasp on like what the field was, like what it is I'm actually getting into, like the auditioning, the you need to be able to adjust your oboe on your own, buddy, because I ain't going to be there or really, (laughs) you know, I can't bring in these crappy reads for you to like fix up or you're going to have to be really self-sufficient. you to have to know this repertoire in and out because once you get in that position, you're not going to know this stuff. This is going to be your first time playing in a professional setting. So you need to go come to this oboe rep class prepared and have had three different recordings and have a good read and play in front of all your colleagues as you play all the tumble to Cooper and back-to-back back in the assembly line. You know, like, you know, like really, really put my feet on the flame. And I really grew and learned from that and also for my colleagues that I learned so much from my colleagues that were there, some of them are some of my best friends today, you know uh, that I talk to all the time, my friends from Juilliard and that that really really helped me a lot. and then from there, you know, I went to Coburn after that so i I went on like the conservatory tour as I call it. I mean, you name it, I've probably been there, so you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I needed somewhere way to go. I was broke, so you know, I was like, y'all got a scholarship? I'm there, and so I can make some things. I can practice. You know what I'm saying? So like, so, so I.
0: I These are my going,
2: skills. Exactly, like, my skills. Can y'all please help? take me? Please take care of me, at least for now. I promise I get a job and make the school look good. You know, so you know, it was. So I wind up going to Coburn after that to study with Alan Bogle. And this was much different than anything any other person I had studied with. So it was much more soloist. It's more of a combination of things. I mean, he played on Marigold, playing on LeRae. So just spending that Coburn and Devine, I learned a lot. And also when I was at Coburn, I started to get also mentored by Ann Gabriel, who's second in, in L.A. field. And she's one of my mentors today. I can't my I can't. Words can't describe how much she gave to me in knowledge. Like, I can't, if I were to put it in a bucket, just overflow buckets and buckets and buckets because we resonated so much and I learned so much from her. And in, in hindsight, the two perspectives at that time, when Ann Gabriel and Alan Vogel, I really learned, like, the fortes in both. So, like, when I, when, when Alan Vogel, at the time, me coming from, like, a Cleveland school, I, I it was so different at the time. I didn't know, I was trying to figure out what, where. Where do I fit in? Where do I where do I see this? And it started to dawn on me more. And i never forget, I was in a Los Angeles for a summer and Adam Vogel said to me, he said, hey, I'm, you're practicing stuff. I know you love to practice. And I was like, yeah, I, I'm practicing. He was like, you know what, Titus? Practicing is an art form. And I was like, oh, my. Mind- <laughs> <laughs> he was like, you're going to be practicing more than you perform. So you need to fall in love with the art of practice. And I was like, it was Come like this me. Yoda moment. And I was yeah. just like, dude, you're right. This is what I'm cool. doing most of the time. I'm probably going to perform <laughs> not even a fourth of how much I practice. So, the art I knew at that time, I was dedicated to the craft of what I did. What I did in my practice room was my life. And I could actually pay to practice more. And then I perform what I practice. Now, move on to the next thing. And I keep practicing. So, I'm dedicated to a craft and a process more than a destination or a job. So then at that moment, it made me put peace in me and content. That doesn't mean that I wasn't still hungry for the job because I was, you know, making finals with these different auditions and trial weeks and stuff. And I mean, and Gabriel just gave me so much knowledge on like, like, you know, the, just the basic phrasings of things like where music goes. If it's, if it's going somewhere or it's coming from somewhere or like how my reads should be set up, how my air should be, where to focus the sound, like really, really it's not that not learn that from all my previous teachers. But it was like. Because I didn't have all that set up from high school, like I was learning so much, and I'm at the time when I was in different schools, I was kind of faking the funk in a way. Like you figure out a way to tape it together and make it work. But like,
1: I am familiar with this method.
2: Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like it's working, so leave me alone. Like, yeah. Like, a donut on one 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 part of the car and then run
1: yeah. side of the yeah.
2: car is a big wheel and the other one's a small <laughs> and you, but you're making it work, you know. One gift <laughs> is the transmission is slipping, but you get to the destination. So that's how I was kind of piecing things together. And like, you know, anger would just kind of open up that hood. You know, it's just like, oh, I see all this stuff under the hood. And I was just like, oh, well, let's go there. And <laughs> then there, then from there, I went to rice for a year. And I stayed with, with uh, Bob Athos. So that's what i I was going on this, like, I was in all the totally. corners of the United States. I totally. I went to the Northeast. <laughs> I went to the West Coast. I went to Texas, which is his own country. You know, so I, I went down to, to Houston. And then I just learned that just the, the bigger sweep of things, the bigger picture, the, the bigger musical message, the bigger beats, the internal post development, and all that environment that was at Rice that really helped me foster, like, There was it was like a family there and like the orchestra and all this stuff so i learned so much there and i was able to grow my craft even more there from just learning just like the musical genius of what bob athro had to offer to me so it was like man i'm getting all these different perspectives and sometimes it was confusing when i was getting that information at the time especially on the audition circuit right so you're getting all this different information but on my professional life i feel like i've been given a ton of tools like if I can't figure something out, which met I got all the I got a lot of methods to go to, you know, and at that time I studied with with, with Richard Williams at Aspen, which was a very life-changing experience. So I was just, there were so many different teachers who I came in contact with that I got to know. Then from there, I went and got to um two years as associate principal in Utah Symphony. So I'm at altitude at that time, making reads at altitude, which is a much different thing for being, you know, been to Aspen at Breckenridge, NRO, all that stuff. And I started to to like learn the, the job, you know, like playing, cranking out stuff every week, every week, every week, and knowing that I had to hold a professional level every week. So I was in two one years there. Then after that, I because I didn't have a place to land, I went down the land in Boca Raton. I studied with Joe Robinson for a year. So then with that, I started to really learn about also about like my air playing on the wind and and phrases and playing in a much more effortless way. And I would never. That also changed my life in a lot of ways, just learned to play in a much more effortless way. I really started to let go of lots of tensions that I had before, and I became more efficient at playing the oboe and connecting notes or tonguing junctures and 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 shapes of phrase rather than notes, but more shapes within phrases. Joe Rob's really drilled that home with me. I mean, in a very, you know, he was very hard with that. And I and I learned and I knew how many gyms so many different people had and all these great people that I studied with. And from there, I wound up getting a uh, principal oboe of that. Na- I was two years uh, acting principal of, of Nashville. Then I had to take the the full audition, you know, screen all the way to the end and all this stuff. And I, and I won the job there. And that's why I am today.
1: I want to ask you about the audition, but I also I want to ask you about this incredible sense of gratitude that you seem to bring to all of your very, diverse experiences, Mm -hmm. moving all the way across the country multiple times. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you took a bunch of auditions during all of those times. Um, And you mentioned that it being confusing. And was that um, was the sense of gratitude there with you the whole time? Is that something that you had to develop um, as you matured? Mm -hmm. And maybe we can even get into advice for students who are experiencing the confusion of being a student and taking in multiple perspectives and feeling mm-hmm. the pressure of being a student. And burnout. And burnout, yeah, and burnout. Oh yeah,
2: oh yeah, burnout. Um, To tell you the truth, at the time, there were sometimes I didn't feel the gratitude because I really needed a job. And sometimes my teachers who were on the other side they had a deeper understanding than what I had at the time. But I was like, I need a job. Can you like help me with these excerpts? You know? <laughs> and then like, you need to go play this fur- this slow furling with a drone because you playing sharp right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, oh, but can we get to this? Let's seta. You know what I'm saying? So like, I, I at the time, I, what, what the medicine that I needed isn't what I always wanted. It's like you put, I'm like, you want all the meat, potato, but they like eat your, eat your vegetables. And my teachers always gave me the vegetables that I needed because they wanted to foster my talent. And they knew what I had and they weren't denying my dream. They just gave me what I needed. And at that time, I, I was I was always a receptive student. I was never like the type to go into school. like, oh, No, you got to say like there's a reason why I'm there. So I'm there to learn from each person. And even if they had conflict and some of my teachers didn't necessarily agree with each other's methods, and that's fine. You know, because I know the oboe is one of those things that like teachers can be very, very strict about what you play on and stuff like that because it's hard enough to figure out one way to play it. And when you figure out that one way to play it, you tell everyone, this is the way you do it. But it's, that's not necessarily true. It's what works for you. But I have I've grown to have gratitude. I've grown to have a different vantage point of knowing which each teacher has given to me. Cause at any given point on my job, I've had to rely on the things that they told me in in ways that I've made it my own to be able to solve issues very quickly and also to continue to grow today. So, and also being in contact with, um, with some of my teachers, you know, and that has helped me grow the most. It's just, I have a different perspective. I'm not in that grind. Like I'm, I mean, now COVID, who, who knows what's happening next, but I'm able to just work on my craft without this boogeyman of an audition on my back. You know, it's it's nice to be an orchestra of tenure. It's great. I mean, but I, I want to just continue to grow. And I want to tell students, you know, with, with burnout and stuff like that, you know, always, you know, don't don't get so hung up on just the job. You know, a lot of people get hung up on that destination. There there is no destination. There are jobs, but there are no destination. As far as your craft, you're an artist first, and you're an orchestra musician second. Like, you bring your artistry to that orchestra. That's why they want you. They'll say, oh, we have an orchestra musician. Come on, orchestra musician. Like, it's like, what do you have to say as a player? You know, so work on your craft work on this things, always be discovering something. Cause usually burnout comes out from playing the same thing over and over and not getting the result that the results that you want. And yeah, it sucks sometimes to sit up and record yourself and and be angry at what you heard, right? Or a teacher who's frustrated that you haven't figured something out yet. Or maybe you and your teacher are not getting along at the time. Or maybe, you know, a lot of people are dealing with burnout because they're playing over Zoom all the time and they're just they don't have anyone to play with. So they can't re-energize themselves with that energy of playing with others. So I would just say, you know, try your best to keep, like I said in, uh, earlier was you, you're dedicated to the art of practice and that art of practice brings you in other rooms of participating with others who love the art of practice. So you get together and you rehearse together which is an art of practice and you perform. So it depends on the perspective that I have that keeps me from burning out as much And it also makes me humble and and grateful that I have so much to learn, and having so many teachers, I don't. I mean, I know that probably some other people. I've been, I've been to a lot of places and met a lot of people in this business, and a lot of people who've played in a lot of great positions. You know, I've really got to see a full scope of, you know, the American, you know, differences of of styles of vocal playing and what are the things they have to offer. And everyone's coming from a genuine place of thinking that this is a great way to approach it. And that's what I really really learned that each one of those have immense value.
1: Does this attitude of work on your cra- your craft of practice first help with performance anxiety? Do you experience performance anxiety and is that something that is a strategy that helps you?
2: So, I don't deal with performance anxiety as much I used to. But for me, the way it is, there's two different things. There's the auditioning anxiety, and which I think is, can be different from performance like regular performance anxiety. Cause some people say you put me on a job. I'm great. People in audition is not so great. Right. That's a very common thing that I hear amongst people who are taking auditions that feel like they're still trying to, they, they haven't quite gotten over that Achilles heel of, of, you know, getting through a list on a stage and being a number behind the screen. So for performance anxiety, one thing that I did to really help myself was, was one, I do a lot of mental projection, a lot of mental practice. I always say when I'm performing something, it's a nostalgic moment more so. And of course I'm creating that moment, of course I'm creating music in real time, but I need to be so prepared that I know exactly what's, and of course there are a lot of moving parts in an orchestra. That's what makes it so interesting. You have 88 or hundred people on the stage all going, trying to create a musical go for a composer that wrote it for us with a conductor that's conducting it. That's a lot that's going on while trying to balance things and pitch and, and rhythms and, and articulations and interpretations. There's a lot that's happening. So for me, a thing that helps me with performance anxiety is being in the moment. Because a lot of times anxiety comes up when there's a boogeyman telling you, you're gonna mess it up eventually. It's coming, it's coming, it's about to happen, Titus. It's like I, all those red lights flashing, I make sure I go to all those parts where I need to practice them differently or or transpose them or whatever. I make sure I really cover my bases with all those things. So it's not, you know, it's it's not an anxious moment where I feel like there's an unknown. I think a lot of times performance anxiety comes with the unknown. So for me, I think maybe because I grew up in a rap group or whatever, or step team or slam porch, all these things that I did, it kind of killed that stage fright for me, you know? So, what I usually do, if I am feeling that creep in, I try my best to mentally project exactly how I want to feel while I'm playing. And I also, another thing, even if I'm, I'm in fight or flight mode, I try to, when you're playing confidently, you have a physical manifestation of confident playing. There's a level of comfort. So I try to, even if my mind isn't quite working the way I want, I remind myself what is physical, what physically is the manifestation of confident playing. And then when I hear that, me playing that, a lot of times it can put my mind at ease.
1: Okay. Now I want to ask you about your audition.
2: Yeah, please.
1: Yeah. How was your, you already started talking about your preparation. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us more about that and uh, how that day went.
2: Okay. So as far as like preparation for, um, I was really busy cause I was on the job. I remember I had to prepare the day after the audition, I had to play Dot Sleep, which was not on the list. Two weeks before that, I had to play Schumann 2, which was also not on the list. In between those two weeks, I played a full recital. So I had a lot going on, like, the week before my audition. So I'm juggling a lot of stuff. And people are, like, oh, you know it's event No, I always say people who have the advantage in auditions are people who have the time to just practice those excerpts all day long. So I was getting up. I was at the hall at 5 a.m., practicing because i said my best hours my most the, my best playing hours some of that is going to have to go to my my myself rather than me warm up in all my best hours and not to come home tired after a double mm-hmm. to practice this list there's no way i'm gonna have the time so i had to get up i was up there 5 a.m i had a very strict read regimen for that i had i mean i played for one of my colleagues julia all the time she was very good at helping me train mentally for that um, very good with mental practice and things like principal bassoon. You got to interview her as well. She's great. Um, and for me, I started to really understand the power of my thinking more so than just playing through stuff all the time. Cause what I was 32, 31, 32, when I got the job. So at this time I was the first audition. I like quote unquote, like got past and. Start in the trial weeks. I was 24, you know. So this is 10, almost 10. This is 10 years ago at this point. So at this time, I made about 15, 16 finals. I had three, I had at least three different orchestras of trial weeks. So I'd seen that 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 pathway plenty of times. I was like, you know what? I'm not going down that pathway again. It, I got this one. I've got to nail it. I've got to Titus. You got to get it together. <laughs> All right? And I was just like, I had come close so many times, so many times, so many times. So the thing that happens within this business, I understand, which is it's going to always be there, unfortunately, is that you can always find someone younger than you that can play faster and better than you in some ways. Always. There's That's always different. someone who plays the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto at 20, and they'd be like, you saw this eight-year-old on YouTube who played, this perfect. You know? <laughs> That's always there. <laughs> and you have to just kind of be in your own lane, doing your own thing, because it's viewed as a young person's sport. It's not. It's just whoever plays on that day, it's the beauty of the screen. No matter, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It can be the hot shot at whatever conservatory, studying with whomever, and you can show up with your stuff just as, like, you know, you know, tight and, and, and worked out and imaginative and in tune and in time and, and commanding, you know, you can do all of that because you have the power to do it. So I really started to think to myself, how do I do this without having all this baggage that's there? So my biggest, I did a lot of mental practice more than anything else. I walked on that stage a thousand times. I played in a thousand different outfits. I played those extras perfectly, absolutely where I wanted to go thousand times i walked in that warm-up room a thousand times i got that check at the why did we still write checks and hand out i hope they just get rid of checking
1: (laughs) just venmo me (laughs) i
2: know I, i picked up that deposit check a thousand times you get what i'm saying so like for me it was truly me walking in a memory so i didn't feel uncomfortable because I was like, I've done this. It's not like, oh, why did they put Tumbo and the Scarlet Sator and Lemire on the first round? Oh, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> I had shuffled that list so many times. You can do anything. You can just drop a pen anywhere on that list. And I'll play it down. It didn't matter. Because that's how prepared I wanted to be. I call it tracing your line. You're literally tracing. It's like a coloring book, which you've already made and you just go in there, open up each page and trace it. You're not going there trying to try out, oh man, I don't know what to draw. No, it's right there and it's beautifully made. And people say, well, uh, you, there's no inspiration in that. No, because it's what I drew. Does an artist show up at the museum and say, man, I wish I could draw on that again. No, it's his <laughs> art, it's his painting. He thought about it. So I think of every piece, not excerpt, every piece as his own artwork in which I've created. And of course, in context of knowing what the composer, all the contextual things, of course, we know all those things that are there. You know, you don't wanna do something that's out of the style in which you're playing. However, I really, really thought of each things that I crafted exactly the way I wanted to play. So I was proud when I showed up and I wasn't second guessing myself in real time on the stage. This is my painting. This is my next painting. That's what I mean, an artist doesn't show up to his art exhibit with his paintbrushes, feeling insecure what he's gonna present at the exhibit. It's already there, it's already made. And I I show you the painting and I go through all my paintings and I walk off that stage with confidence. Either you like it or you don't, the choice is yours, whatever. And I go about my business, but the thing is, I have to be, I, I don't do that from some intuitive level, I do from an objective level. I play with my drone on exercise no gonna get problems on intonation. I play with a pulse that's not just tempo chasing. Off beats. I'm feeling that pulse. I'm doing. I'm combing through everything. I'm recording myself. So I record myself, not just to beat up on myself, but I call it proof listening. You proof read a paper. So you proof listen. Take your emotions out of it. I know we're sensitive about our art and I am too. But like, I'm just looking at it and saying, how can I craft that better? Because the thing that a lot of people don't really don't click a lot of times. It's like, we have a lot of great players who don't have strong minds. They will crap on themselves before they even get on the stage. It's their mind that they've been tricking themselves. And when you're projecting something that intimidates you, it's actually your best playing in your own head because you don't know what other people sound like. So these are the process I would go through. I said, I'm gonna beat a thing that intimidates me because I'm projecting myself. I'm just going to grow into that and play that way, what I'm hearing, not what I think I'm going to place on another candidate that's in my round. Not be like, oh, that that person's here, that person's here. Oh, snap, he was in my round. It's like, who cares? So what? No one knows, but you, because you're too busy getting stuff tied up in knots and, and taking your painting off the wall and taking the brushes back out. So that's how I really prepared mentally, and i tell anyone to prepare for an audition, you know, you gotta be really, you gotta really dig in there and go through everything. So for me, especially in an older person, a quote unquote older person in his art form, I knew the stigma that comes with that, you in your thirties and you still on the audition trail, you still taking audition, you 32, so what? My path is my path. You know, if we got to the same destination, I don't know how far your house is from here, but we're both here, right? So like, doesn't matter what my, my, my journey was. So that has been, that was the thing I knew I had to reinvent the way I thought about auditions for this one. Cause when I was 24, it was a lot different. I was a lot more blindly confident then because I didn't have all the bags. I didn't have all the trial weeks. I didn't have all the finals. I didn't have all the auditions I showed up. I didn't even pass the first round or I got cut after two excerpts, you know, and my confidence goes down. My playing goes down. I didn't have all that. And people saying why? Why is this? Why is that? Why you can't hold a job? Maybe something's wrong with his playing. Like all that talk, I had to shut all that out and be like, Titus, you got to focus in on you. And that's what really helped me get over that line.
0: Well, I can tell you grew up in church because you're taking care <laughs> right
2: now. <laughs> Pastor's kid. I told you I get on this roll. I need I need an organ behind me right now. So you know. <laughs>
1: practice my excerpt <laughs>
2: go practice yeah. Uh, oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> and oh let me talk about the actual I'm sorry I didn't talk about the actual audition Wait. when I was at the audition it was like any other audition you go through the, <laughs> you go through the rounds it was all behind the screen and then Titus <laughs> is the last person standing that's how that went so that's the long and short of that but I'm glad I got to go through
1: <laughs> so the story is I won
2: <laughs> the story is I won and I remember I never forget, yeah. It's like I knew, I mean, I was just, I was so in the zone. I was in the zone. I, I was just, I never, I remember, I remember how those excerpts felt. I remember really trusting what I had to deliver. I remember in the final round when it was three people, then I went to a super final, it was just me. I remember in the, the first final round, the only note that I missed was the first attack of Mahler three that was at the end of the list. And then I was like, you know what? Let me try that again. And I played it again, it was just fine. I was just <laughs> fired up. I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to play this thing down. Like throw anything out there. Barber one, let's do it. I'm gonna give you legato for days. Let's go, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, you know, I think, I think it's like when you show up, you gotta feel like that's your space. I tell people this, when you're in an audition Don't let the listener step on your stage and crowd your performance. That's your time to perform, unless you both playing at the same time and trying to see plays louder. I'm not gonna let your listening crowd my stage. I'm gonna play, this is my time. So because you're over there, this is my space, which means that I'm in control of what's heard. I'm in control of what's heard because I'm delivering the sound and I'm gonna deliver what what I promised and I'm going to deliver what I practice in this room. I'm going to deliver exactly what I promised myself I would deliver. So here I am delivering what I promised. And I'm confident in that. And that's why I, when you're there and you're playing, you got to believe in what you're doing. You're there totally convicted. You have full conviction on what you're doing. And people can feel that conviction. They want to be a part of that. That's what makes people say, yes, yes. You, you've crossed all that. I'm not saying don't go in there playing super out of tune and you playing with a ton of conviction. That, <laughs> no, you know, my tempo's on, but I played with conviction. You know, no, you, you need to, you need to, you know, make sure everything, everything is, is combed through. After you go through that, like Miles Davis said, take the gloves off and just do it. At that time, it's so internalized that you're singing at that point. You're singing every excerpt. So yeah, that pretty much the day, that's how I felt. Through each round, just really in the zone, every round, just knocking them out. I remember I would walk out and I would reach my arms into the air like this before I played, because you walk in there kind of like this. Mm. But I walked out, I just stood up and stretched my arms out, and like, this is my space. And then after that, I sat down and I played. And then I go out another round, this is my space, because you can feel yourself shrinking. The screen will make you shrink, the silence will make you shrink. To open up the, the reed case will make you shrink. That first trill in the Mozart concerto would definitely make you shrink. <laughs> you, know, you know, so everything is there to just push you down. And then you give that crown to someone else that you don't even know. I'm gonna let you play better than me, what I prepare. Cause I know you probably, whoever you are in my head, I'm projecting. No, I'm gonna be that person in that space at that time. And either that person, either that group likes it or they don't. So I really learned the art of that, especially for this audition, more so than any other audition that I had taken. And that's not saying that I didn't take other auditions with confidence. I remember ones that really felt like I played well, but it just maybe wasn't the fit for that place or anything like that. But for that that one in particular, I was like, I got to do this. And I was engaged at the time. I was like, I can't be engaged and broke. So you know, I'm like, I need to get together. But you know, perfect. so like, I have nowhere to go. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna go? You know, I think uh, there were other in- in- incentives that put fire under me even more so. Um, you know, and also just uh, my friends and my fiance and and my great friend Julia and you know, I had and Elaine Duvall and all these great people who were around me and Ann Gabriel. All these people really helped me up. Uh, really pushed me. And Joe Robinson was very helpful, you know, just people who helped, you know, hold me up and, and restore my confidence. So that was also very helpful in that process.
0: I'd love to follow up on something you said earlier um, about your time in Utah, where you said you had to learn how to do the job. And mm-hmm. so I'd love to shift from auditioning and, and getting the job to doing the job and what mm-hmm. you've learned uh, in your position about, how that works and your concept of what is a great principal oboist.
2: Oof, me on the job and what you're doing. The one thing, and this is what I mean by many teachers and relying on things. I never, I remember I asked Jamek, I said, how do you, how did you play principal of Cleveland orchestra Style those years? He was like, I said, were you ever nervous? He was like, I wasn't nervous. I was mainly concerned, you know, and I always was, concerned about, you know, my colleagues. I didn't want to let my colleagues down. I have people counting on me when I show up to work to deliver uh, my part. And that became more and more real. You know, just being a great colleague and citizen of your institution and of your group and of your orchestra and showing up with your best. And even when people are not playing their best, being an encouraging colleague to know that they're trying their best. Because it can be very, it, things can, orchestras can get toxic pretty quickly sometimes, depending on, you know, relationship. You don't know who was in relationship with who before or whatever happened 10 years then when that person played this out of tune and was like, gave him the middle finger. I don't know. But like, you have to just come there and I, and I learned more so to just Be very, very thoroughly prepared. Understand, respond quickly to what the conductor is asking you to do. Respond quickly to what the ensemble is doing. Be a a leader in a very, very, um, not this heavy-handed way. I know there used to be like this old school, I'm principal, but I'm the concert master of the section, you know, listen to what I'm doing. It's like, it's better to be collaborative. It's better to not be alarming to people. It's better to not be so didactic in telling people what to do. You know, it's better to invite people into your space. Play in a way that people gravitate to your playing. Play in such a way that it inspires others and they want to be a part of that. That's the thing that really makes music making special, is that I can demonstrate a lot through playing, a lot less through talking. Because I could be using the same words. You might not, can we make this shorter? And then some people be like, well, how short? We're like, but, or is it, but, or is it, blah? you know, like, <laughs> you know, so it's better to, Use very little very little bit about how much you speak, but a lot about how you demonstrate and learn, you know, the sensitivities. I mean, ask people how their day is going. Something as simple as that, how are you doing? How's your day? How's your family doing? You know, simple stuff, just being a nice person. I mean, I get it that like, you can be principal of this or whatever, but at the end of the day, you know, I think like I'm I'm blowing air through holes on a stage. And that's great. (laughs) But I need I need to take that medicine sometimes to be humble, and understand that like yes I'm creating art and I you know feel like I'm pretty good at what I do, but th- we need to come from a much more humble approach at times to be human, and know that you know and this COVID time is if this ain't humbling anybody, I don't have a principal chair to sit in right at the moment. And you know what? That's okay because I'm, remember I'm an artist first. So what am I bringing to that job? You know, what am I bringing at? Who is Titus bringing to that job? You know, to that space as an artist. And I think I've gained a much more concrete view of that. When I was in Utah, I really started to learn that. Like just, you have to get up and do it consistently. Doing it consistently. Even when you don't feel like it, make that read. I know I want to play this video game right now, but like, <laughs> go gals that came. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Like turn off, you Netflix is firing up the next episode of Narcos. I do I have one more hour? I ah, go make those reads. You know, so I knew that I had to my I had to be a principal at home and like in my workspace. It's like I'm walking around like a principal. Hey, you man of my fiance. I'm I'm the principal. No, not nothing like that. But like. Just know my work ethic. What does it take to produce this consistently week after week? Mm -hmm. That needs to be my habit in my life. And I need to enjoy that. How do I enjoy doing that? What is the joy that I bring in that? And that's the biggest thing that I've learned on the job, to deliver that at a high level over and over and over again and using these objective measures, as I talk about, to really keep my playing in check.
1: Would you be able to tell us about a favorite memory that you have from performing on stage?
2: One of my favorite memories, I'd say recent memories of playing on stage, uh, it was Garrick Olson, the pianist, was playing Barber uh, Piano Concerto. And there's this part where the oboe introduces this theme. It's a very beautiful oboe solo. I mean, Barber writes like the best oboe solos like all the time. And for real, I remember like he was playing it. And then I would play it and he would play it and I would play it in every little bit. He came up to me at a break. He said, you have such a beautiful voice. And I said, I love the way that you're voicing it on the panel. And like, it was this moment in which I took a part of the way he phrased it. And he also took a part of how I phrased. And it was like this really beautiful connection of using just this, this moment in time of like 20, 30 seconds to really have an exchange on making music. With I mean, I mean, I'm humble for someone who's that great at playing piano, you know, to be like, I love what you're doing, but at the same time, we just connected as two artists, creating a beautiful phrase and turning it into something at that time which was ours. So that was my one of my most fondest memories of, of recent of late.
1: That is beautiful. Um, would you be willing to share maybe an embarrassing story or a horror story? Ooh, (laughs) I remember,
2: (laughs) Uh, I remember we we were playing Mahler 5. (laughs) I was so embarrassed. You know, there's that one, (laughs) there's that solo at the beginning, I think it's like the fifth movement. Da 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 dee. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget. <laughs> I was sitting there. I don't know what I was thinking about, but I was I was out on cloud, whatever. I was on Mars. And I was thinking about something very intensely. I don't even know what I don't remember exactly what it was. And I remember it was my time, and I was just like, and I was switching gears to get back in there, cause you know it's that beautiful fourth movement of the strings. And by the time the third performance, it's like so beautiful, but like I'm a little tired, I'm a little, <laughs> I want a beer, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I'm so this, scared. <laughs> this fifth movement, just it through it, and then you know it's, the movement's so long. Then that bassoon solo comes out of nowhere when it's, I'm like, okay, I, I need to get through this. So it comes up, you know, and then I come in, yada da da, and it was just all notes come out. And I was just like, when I ended up, I was just like, oh my goodness, I should have been thinking about that beer. You know, I was so embarrassed because everyone knew I messed up. Everyone oh, no. knew oh, so in this no. moment, some of those moments, some of those really obvious, simple solos, and you think you can autopilot it. But you, you know, when you're playing something, and you be like, "How do I finger middle D?" Like in the middle of playing a solo, it's like, no,
1: it's wrong. you're like, "I know that symbol means something, but I don't exactly. remember what it is."
2: Exactly. It's just like, and why did it have to be the last performance? I'm like, that's so embarrassing. I can't like redeem myself. I can't. So that was my most recent, like, embarrassing. Oh, that's moment. terrible. So I'm so sorry. But yeah, it, it really that. <laughs> <sucked. It really laughs> <sucked>. Oh yeah, <laughs> big time. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> we usually end with advice for a young musician, but I feel like you've given us so much great advice that I'd actually like to switch it up for this interview. Sure. And um, earlier, you said dope music is dope music oh yeah and i feel like that's something that we don't acknowledge enough in the classical music community and so i'd love to hear your thoughts on the value that music that is not western classical Mm -hmm. music has given to you personally artistically and whatnot
2: i mean i always think about it this way like you know, I mean, the soundtrack of my life are many different things. I'm a composite of many different things and culture and all this stuff. Like I talked about, grew up in gospel and basically almost a Pentecostal church and dancing and falling out and all this stuff and all that music that was in there and, and hip hop and this, that, and the other. Like, I, I, I think that any high, anyone who's pursuing their craft, I was talking to a student about this today. I'm like, you know, like there's this thing called cypher circles in, in hip hop, like early hip hop, where people will get in a circle and just like see who can freestyle the best. You know, I think of that as like an etude or like uh, you're like trying to come up with words that rhyme while being in time with different syllables and stretching things and the meanings of things while trying to like clown the next person next to you with humor. Like music is like humor and phrasing and cadence and, and you're trying to piece that together in real time so that you can go back and write even better for your next rhyme and you show up the next time so like is that not high art you know is that not I mean can a, if, if it's not high art then anybody should be able to do it at a high level I mean I understand that like they're like well it's like you know there's this commercial music of everything I mean Packerbell's has become pretty much commercial music you know so like I can't, I mean, it's not The Roots or or, or Kendrick Lamar to Pimple Butterfly, is that not high art? I mean, come on. So like for me, I think dope music is dope music and, and these musics hit different frequencies of me that informs the way I walk, the way I, the swag or whatever that informs the way that I play. And I can bring all those voices and interpretations into the way that I move and play on stage. Why can't that be? Is there a way to do things? Like really, are there rules? Like I, I really ask like classical musicians, what are the rules of which you can present yourself within the music? questions within the context of that composer, but like each voice brings it to life in a different way. So I you view all that, I'm always studying all types of art forms in presentations and things like that. Because in presentation that matter, then we wouldn't show up in tails. we just show up in our pajamas and be like, the music matters, just listen. You know, you, you show up dressed a certain way, you bow. We ask people to be quiet during a the performance. There's a format that's there. Why can't we add to it from different art forms? And the one thing I, I've, I've realized within like, especially within Western classical music is like what it values. And did Bartok, would we have a Bartok without those Hungarian folk songs? Right. Would we have a Bach without those hymns that were already there, those corrals in which he just said, you know what? These are pretty bare bone chorales. Let, let me see what I can do with this. I can expand on this. You know, Molly said, oh, there's this klezmer tune here. Let I can expand on this and make this even doper within, or, or just make it broader in a way within the vessel in which I create music, which is called classical music. Or, you know, someone could say, I can turn this into a fugue. Why can't we take some of the sacred music of American music, what I would call it, you know, the hip hops, the jazz, the, 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 all this stuff, and canonize that and embellish these tunes in a way that are familiar to an audience and make that broader in a way that's just as intricate as Bach took a chorale, because that was the popular music, because most folks were just going to church and going to drink beer and having a bunch of kids. You know, Bach had way, you know, a lot of kids. But it's like, you know, I think all these things that was going on at the time, like, why can that be applied to today? So I think when I think of something, when I'm listening to like an MF Doom album or I'm listening to a, a, a Jay-Z album or whatever, or a Common or, or Lupe fiasco, I'm, I'm inspired by how these people write. Like, how do you think of these words? You know, how do you put these together? What made you do this beat selection? I'm not, I'm not demeaning that process because I do the same thing. I, mean, I picked out a certain read for a certain color. You know, I phrased a certain way to bring something out. And most of those classical music musicians can't write anything. So, like, who's to say that we're the the real artists? You know what I'm saying? Like, I get this other sort of art form and performing, but you know, these are people who are writing, performing, making beats, all this stuff. So, I think there's just value in anything that someone's dedicated to at doing it at a very excellent level. And it, there's no levels to this. It's just dope music. It's just dope music, and that's really how I feel about it.
1: Titus, thank you so much for joining us on Double Dish. This was just a fantastic way to spend an hour. We really can't thank you enough.
2: Thank you. Thank. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it's awesome.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media. And if you wouldn't mind, we'd love if you gave us a rating and review on iTunes. Mark your calendars for our December 1st episode, where we will bring you an interview with Ted Soluri, Principal Bassoon of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. It's time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.